0: Welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Speak Softly, Love, by Cleveland guitarist Victor Samalot. Victor is our featured Ohio music artist tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Slice, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Beacon Journal.
1: Hi, everybody. Tonight, we're going to Glendale, Ohio, a village down in Hamilton County, north of Cincinnati, and specifically to Oak Hill Cemetery, because there you'll find an unassuming flat gravestone with a name and twistle. On the left is Father Robert, born 1872, died 1922. On the right, it says daughter Millicent, born 1908, died 1932. The marker is only 10 years old. It was purchased through a modern era Facebook fundraising campaign to memorialize a story that played out a century ago. The woman buried here, Millicent Entwistle, only lived 24 years, but her short and tragic life had been a far-ranging journey, from her birth in Wales, England, to her youth growing up on Broadway in New York, to her dreams of stardom in Los Angeles, and then her unexpected final resting place in southwestern Ohio. Tonight, I'm going to tell you her story and why some claim she haunts the famous Hollywood sign that has been beckoning would-be starlets and crushing their dreams for decades. She was born Millicent Lillian Entwistle to a family of stage actors, but they never called her that. She was just Peg. She spent her early years in London with her father. She never knew her mother, an actress named Emily Stevenson. Her parents divorced when she was two years old and she grew up believing her mother to be dead. Peg's uncle, Charles Entwistle, emigrated to New York to work on Broadway, but returned occasionally. In one visit, the two Entwistle brothers, Charles and Peg's dad, Robert, They performed in the play Julius Caesar for the new King George V at his coronation. At the age of eight, Peg and her father followed Uncle Charles to America. By this time, Uncle Charles had met and married an actress from the Cincinnati suburb of Glendale. Her name was Jane Ross. And while Charles and Jane worked on Broadway, they frequently traveled to Ohio. And now that Peg and her father, Robert, were in America, they joined them on these trips. And that's how Peg's dad, Robert, ended up falling in love with Jane's sister, Loretta, who was also an actress. So now the Entwistle brothers were married to two sisters from Cincinnati, all four of them with successful Broadway careers. Their private lives were moving along as well. Robert and Loretta welcomed two new sons in this time, Milton and Bobby, making Peg a very proud big sister. Peg couldn't have been happier. She also loved her stepmom and her Aunt Jane, and they adored her. But this was a family destined for tragedy. In 1921, Loretta died from meningitis. It was a terrible blow. Robert and his three children took Loretta's body back to Ohio to be buried in the Ross family plot at Oak Hill Cemetery. And a 13-year-old peg stepped up to look after the house and her two little brothers. The blows just kept coming because a year after Loretta's death, Robert was gone. In December of 1922, he was struck by a motorist on Park Avenue and 72nd Street in New York City. A motorist who didn't bother to stop. Robert initially survived and appeared to be recovering from the incident, but then suddenly died from complications of those injuries. Peg and her brothers were taken in by Uncle Charles and Aunt Jane, and they moved back to Cincinnati. Robert was interred at Oak Hill near the wife he lost a year earlier. And then a third shock at least to Peg. Because when they read Robert's last will and testament, there was this surprise. The document said, Millicent Lillian Entwistle is the daughter of my first wife, whom I divorced, and the custody of my said daughter was awarded to me. I do not desire my said daughter to be at any time in the custody or control of her said mother. So, Peg's mother hadn't died after all. There is no evidence Peg looked for or found her mother. While in Cincinnati, one of Peg's brothers developed a condition that doctors said needed dry, warm weather. So Uncle Charles and Aunt Jane moved the family to Los Angeles into a little house beneath the flashing Hollywoodland sign. Peg spent a carefree year in the Hollywood Hills, going to the beach and riding horses, but she really wanted to follow her father to Broadway. So in 1925, Uncle Charles sent her back east. Her first uncredited Broadway part was in Hamlet, starring Ethel Barrymore. Peg got to carry in the King's train and bring in the poison cup. That same year, Peg got a more substantial role in a production of The Wild Duck. And get this, she was so memorable that after seeing the play, a teenage girl in the audience who had dreams of her own told her mom, I want to be exactly like Peg and Twistle. That teenager was Betty Davis, and throughout her life, Betty Davis repeated the story of how Peg had been her inspiration to take up acting. Now, Peg performed in a dozen Broadway productions between 1926 and 1932. And during that time, she also traveled to Cincinnati for a few plays at the city's famous music hall. In April of 1927, after a whirlwind courtship, 19 year old Peg married a fellow actor, Robert Keith, at the chapel of the New York City clerk's office. Her uncle objected, telling her she was too young, but she had her way. The marriage only lasted two years. She filed for divorce, claiming cruelty, saying her husband would pull handfuls of hair from her head. And she charged that she never knew her husband had been married before and that he had concealed from her that he had a six-year-old son. The divorce was granted. Now, the stepson that Peg didn't know she had, he was Brian Keith. If you grew up in the 60s and 70s, you saw a lot of Brian Keith. He was in a host of Disney movies like The Parent Trap and The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. And he had some beloved television roles in Family Affair and Hardcastle and McCormick to name a couple. After Peg's divorce, her stage career was still going well, but she felt typecast. She was often put in comedies playing the attractive, good-hearted ingenue. In 1929, she told a reporter, I would rather play roles that carried conviction. So, 1932, She said goodbye to Broadway with the goal of moving to the silver screen. At the height of the Great Depression, she returned to L.A., first to the home of Uncle Charles and Aunt Jane, and then she was able to afford her own little place because she got a job, although her first job was on the stage again. She landed a role in a production that featured Billy Burke and Humphrey Bogart, in a downtown Los Angeles theater. It was an impressive cast, and it got good reviews, but it wasn't film. Peg was finally given a screen test at RKO, and in June of 1932, she signed a contract to appear in 13 Women. It was a high-budget thriller by David O. Selznick, featuring Myrna Loy and Irene Dunn. Look, if you're young and all of these names I'm throwing out don't sound familiar to you, just trust me, these are all huge Hollywood names. Now, the movie was about 13 sorority sisters who were given horrible fortunes and started dropping dead. The problem for Peg was she was given the role of Hazel Cousins, a lesbian, and preview audiences found her storyline so controversial that the filmmakers decided to cut most of her scenes. After production was finished, Peg was cut herself. RKO dropped her from the payroll, and it didn't take long for her to be completely broke. She had to leave her little apartment and return to her uncle's house. Now I said it was the Great Depression Peg was having trouble finding work. She was striking out in both film and stage. Her uncle encouraged her maybe become an acting teacher for a while until roles are available again. But that advice was like salt in the wound. The only movie Peg was ever in, 13 Women, hit theaters on October 14, 1932. But Peg never got to see it. Because a month earlier, she killed herself in spectacular fashion. On September 16, 1932, Peg wrote her uncle a note saying she was going to a drugstore to buy some books and then intended to meet some friends. Then she stepped outside. The iconic Hollywoodland sign was visible from her front yard. It was just down the street and a steep walk up the southern slope of Mount Lee. Peg walked herself to the hill and hiked the trail to the letters, each of those letters as tall as a five-story building. She found a workman's ladder there and used it to climb to the top of the letter H. Then she jumped. Two days later, A woman was hiking below the sign when she came across a woman's shoe, purse, and jacket. She opened the purse and found a suicide note. Only then did the hiker look down the mountain and see the body. This was kind of interesting. The hiker wanted to remain anonymous. I guess not everyone in Hollywood wanted attention. So she took the items to the police station and laid them on the stoop outside, then called the station from a distance to let them know what she had done. Anyway, authorities recovered the body below the Hollywood sign, but nobody knew who the young woman was. In an effort to learn her identity, authorities asked newspapers to publish her suicide note. The note said, I am afraid. I am a coward. I am sorry for everything. If I had done this a long time ago, It would have saved a lot of pain and the letter was signed p e that's when uncle charles was able to put together those initials and peg's two-day absence and realized it was her the coroner ruled she had died of a broken pelvis Now, I saw a short film about Peg's death, and they portrayed her as being initially alive after the fall and dying a rather slow, painful death on that hillside. I don't know if that's true, but hearing that she had died of a broken pelvis did kind of leave open an assumption that she might not have died immediately. And if that wasn't heartbreaking enough... According to a profile done of Peg by the Cincinnati Enquirer just after her death, while she was climbing to her fatal leap, the Beverly Hills community players were trying to find her. They wanted to offer her the lead in their next production called Insult. It was a character who, at the end of the play, commits suicide. Peg was cremated at a mortuary in Hollywood, and her ashes were taken to Ohio to be buried next to her father. Peg never became the film star she longed to be, but she certainly won't be forgotten. There have been several documentaries about her death and a short film that was based on the last day of her life. She's been the subject of numerous paintings and half a dozen songs that I could find. In 2014, 100 people marked the anniversary of her death by gathering in Hollywood to watch her only movie, 13 Women, on an outdoor screen and raise money that they donated to a suicide prevention group. So, if there's a mystery in this story, it's this. Among those carrying on her memory are ghost hunters. Suicide is nothing new in Hollywood. I found one story that said on the weekend Peg killed herself, there were 13 suicides in the Los Angeles area. But from what I can tell, Peg is the only confirmed suicide to actually take place at the famous Hollywood landmark. The first ghost stories about her started in the 1940s. After the same H from which Peg jumped, mysteriously toppled over. People wondered if Peg had something to do with it. Then people started reporting seeing a sad blonde woman wandering the path near the sign. Just a few years ago, Vanity Fair even hunted some of those people down. A woman named Megan Santos said she was jogging along the trail there when she was overcome by the scent of gardenias. And then saw a woman with blonde hair who looked like she was walking on air. She said she turned and ran the other way. she was so disturbed and later learned Peg's story and how her favorite perfume was gardenia.
0: The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of the Siecla a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War One. The SIECLE, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.
2: History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time?
1: Vanity Fair also found a couple who said they were stopped dead in their tracks when a disoriented blonde woman dressed in 1930s clothing appeared and then vanished before their eyes. They insisted they had never heard the name Entwistle before. Many park rangers that patrol the area have also come forward to talk about what they call the Hollywood Sign Ghost, a pretty blonde woman looking forlorn who vanishes as soon as they approach her. And in season 11 of the TV show Ghost Adventures, some folks went to investigate the reports of Peg's presence. Now, I told you there's a lot of tragedy in this story. Peg being told her mother was dead when she was alive, her stepmother dying when she was a girl, her father killed in a hit-and-run, Peg herself committing suicide. It doesn't end there. I told you about Brian Keith, the six-year-old stepson that Peg didn't know she had, who grew up to be a pretty big film and television star. Well, in 1997, that Brian Keith's daughter, Daisy, committed suicide. And Brian Keith himself was so distraught that it cost him to take his own life soon after. By the way, I want to give a shout out to Michael Bonanno for suggesting this story. Michael administers a Facebook page of famous Ohio graves called Too Late for Autographs. And he's the one who turned us on to this. So thanks, Michael. Now, since we're talking about Hollywood in place of an armchair detective, I'm going to give you a bonus Hollywood story with another Ohio mystery. That Hollywood sign would never have been on Mount Lee to begin with if it weren't for an Ohio woman, because it's a woman from Ohio who gave Hollywood its name. Her name was Daida Hartel Wilcox Beveridge. Now, let's start when she was just Daida Hartel. She grew up in the mid-19th century as the daughter of farmers Amelia and John Hartel. They lived in Hicksville, a village in Defiance County. That's in the far northwest corner of Ohio. At some point in her childhood, the family moved to Canton. And when she was 21 years old, she added the Wilcox to her name by marrying H.H. H. Wilcox. He was more than 20 years older than her and suffered a host of health problems that stemmed from childhood illnesses, but they made quite a successful pair. He was a prohibitionist from Kansas, and in 1883, he took his new bride out west, all the way to California. They settled in Northwest Los Angeles, and they bought up 120 acres of land covered with apricot and fig groves. HH subdivided the property into lots and gave Daida the task of designing the landscaping and naming the streets, including one of the most famous street names in the country, Sunset Boulevard. This new village of theirs was going to be a windfall. They bought the land for $150 an acre and, after improvements in infrastructure, planned to sell it for $1,000 an acre. But first, they needed a name. HH had put the working name of Figwood on his development because there had been a fig farm there. But Daida came up with another idea. She was on a train headed back to Ohio to visit family when she found herself chatting with another traveler who was describing her summer home near Chicago. It sounded so enchanting, the way the property was surrounded by beautiful holly trees. So when Daida got back to California, she told her husband she had a better name than Figwood. And so when the map of the subdivision was officially filed, it had the name Hollywood. In interviews much later, Daida revealed that many of the streets she had named were inspired by places and people back home. And that's the mystery inside the story. There does not seem to be any account specifying the Ohio connections to all those Hollywood streets. How fun it would be to know what they were. Now, Daida's husband, H.H., he became Hollywood's first mayor, but he died soon after in 1891. Of course, Daida had learned all the ropes by then, and she continued the work. She finished developing the town and donated the land for Hollywood's City Hall, a library, a park, the police station, the first primary school, and three different churches. She also built the first banks, the post office, the first theater, and she installed the first sidewalks and developed the first commercial district. In 1894, three years after being widowed, she added that last surname. She remarried to Philo Beveridge. He was the son of the California governor. They had four children, and the pair continued her philanthropic works. Dayida died in 1914. And even though she laid out and named Hollywood Boulevard, you will not find her name on that street's walk of fame. There are actually quite a lot of famous people without stars on that walk. George Clooney, Robert Redford, Carrie Fisher, George Lucas, Prince. To get on that walk, you have to be nominated, accepted, then pay a $30,000 fee for your induction ceremony. Then you have to schedule your own ceremony within five years of being accepted. Turns out that walk isn't so much a reward as an exercise in vanity. Still, long after Daida's death, there was an effort to get her a star. In the 1980s, some California historians took a run at it. Daida's hometown of Higgsville, they even took up a collection to help pay for the ceremony. But in the end, the Walk of Fame committee denied her, saying she just didn't fit any of their categories. It wasn't enough that she had once owned, designed, and named Hollywood.
0: That's it for tonight, listeners, for photos, news, clippings, and more. On this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com.
1: Victor Samalot of Cleveland is a truly talented guitarist who said he's been inspired by the likes of Carlos Santana and Jose Feliciano to Phil Keggy, David Gilmore, and Jeff Beck. It's a wonderful blend of his Latin roots with the jazz and rock he has played all his life. Victor is a one-man show when it comes to publishing his own music, maintaining his own website, and doing his own publicity. And he performs a lot. If you follow him on social media, you'll be able to keep up with his schedule. He's on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and his website, victorsamalot.com. This is our third time featuring Victor. His most recent release is Speak Softly, Love. That's the love theme from The Godfather. But Victor has such a unique style all his own, you're going to think you've never heard it before. Well, let's have another
0: listen to Speak Softly, Love by Victor Samolot. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.